Welcome to Fast Fiction. It is just 8:25 p.m. on Saturday, 8th of December, and some rather disturbing events are taking place in Dora Costello's home at 7 Winthrop Gardens. Dory who has been in the bedroom looking out of her window at the neighbors washing on the line in the backyard has just fallen over her neighbor's cat Hooli oh. unfortunately oh. she has hit her head on the dresser but no matter at 89 years of age dory has weather droughts and floods the depression a world war and two husbands so is damn sure she isn't going to expire by falling over a cat well that is what she believes at present mind you although she loves hooli It is difficult to think charitably about him with her leg twisted under her and blood trailing down from her forehead. She can barely see out of her left eye. Of course, she knows the cat shouldn't really be in her room as he belongs to Alma Dugan from number 9. Indeed, it gives her a little satisfaction to hear Alma calling him. Hooli! Hooli! Alma is of similar vintage to Dory, but according to Dory, Alma is a tight-lipped, parsimonious, cranky old mean bitch. Dory knows this to be true because darling Eddie, that's Eddie Dugan, Alma's late husband, had constantly told her so. Not only that, Dory knows that Alma is a strict vegetarian, which doesn't please Holly any either. and why he prefers to visit with Dory. Hooli! Hooli, come here, puss, come on. Puss, 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 come on. Dory's eyes mist over as she thinks of Eddie Dugan. A kinder, sweeter man had not walked the earth. They had been lovers for well over 30 years, right up to his death a year or so before. Well, technically this probably wasn't exactly true. as Dory's arthritis and Eddie's emphysema had been a deterrent for anything too physical but in every other way they had been as much in love at the end as they had been when they duped both Alma and Dory's husband Albert when they partnered each other at the bridge club every Tuesday night <laughs> Eddie <laughs> stop it you're giving me a royal flush <laughs> in the midst of her agony thinking of those romantic evenings flitting through the hedge and over the fence gives dory a great deal of satisfaction holy holy if you don't come you won't have any supper alma somewhat annoyed at her cat goes inside her house at number 9 and shuts the door back in number 7 The pain is excruciating. It is now obvious to Dory that when she fell down, she went straight onto her elbow. She thinks she may have shattered the bone as well as dislocating her hip. She cries for help as best she can. Help! Help! Hello! Help! Help! But unfortunately, it doesn't do her any good. There is no one to hear her. Well, that's not exactly true either. In fact, there is someone else in the house, 
a stocky librarian by the name of Violet Flaherty. Violet is a secret boarder, although this should immediately be clarified as an erroneous nomenclature. You see, most of the people in the immediate neighbourhood knew all about her. However, due to pride, her landlady has desperately tried to deny the gradual decline in her financial status over the years, which for a long time now has necessitated the taking in of paying guests. First Dory sold her mother's Belgium table laceware, then the Ladlow porcelain figurines, the few jewels she had, the silver and the crystal glassware. With little else to sell, she has finally resorted to the embarrassment of becoming a lodging house. True, there is only one lodger, and although paying a modest rental, Violet has been given strict instructions to not only keep the fact quiet, but may only enter the house by the private tree-lined backway lane. She occupies a dismal room adjacent to the laundry, which is always cold and draughty. This is most unfortunate, for like her namesake, Violet has always been delicate and therefore seems to harbour colds as a permanent condition. This is why she does not hear Doris cry for help, for she is at present in front of her dressing table mirror, surveying her plain face, her acne, her red nose, and intermittently weeping into her armpits. <coughs> We must quickly explain that it is not only her inelegant features that have upset Violet. It is her future, too. That very day, she had visited her doctor with a distressing problem, especially embarrassing for a single woman. The doctor had diagnosed the probable onset of menopause. In view of Violet's genteel disposition, he had described it more delicately as the change of life, which was equally devastating news to the reluctant virgin. Actually, if she had been a little more adventurous of spirit, Violet could have taken the view that any change in her life would be a considerable improvement on what had happened before. For alas, nothing had happened before. She had lived all her life caring for her strict ailing parents, who had recently both died penniless. So, destitute and unworldly, she had been forced to board with her mother's only relative, namely Dora Costello. The fact that she was not even a welcome guest did not improve matters, nor make the dark, cold back room in which she boarded any more cheery. Her one comfort had been the acquisition of a dull, boring job as a clerk in a dull, boring library nearby. But she had recently learned that due to the equally apathetic state of the subscribers, the library was about to close, which meant that Violet was about to become redundant. This news, on the day she had learned of her oncoming barren state, had left her extremely upset. That is why she failed to hear Dory's desperate attempt to gain the attention of her boarder. Violet not only does not hear, she is in no condition to do anything, for at this very moment Miss V. Flaherty is completely and indecently rip-roaring drunk, and with another good reason.
For in addition to despondency over her recent feminine condition and redundancy, today, the 8th of December, is an awesome occasion. It is the anniversary of her would-be lover John Lennon's premature demise. We hasten to emphasize would-be lover for she had never actually met John. Even so, his untimely execution had provided her with a fantasy of unrequited love and therefore an arguably good reason for spinsterhood. This day, each year since 1980, she has a valid excuse to inwardly scream her protest against the world and all its unfairness, especially with the assistance of a bottle or two. But wait, time marches on. It is now 8.45pm and things are about to get a little complicated. Let us momentarily reconsider the situation. At 8.25pm, Mrs. Dora Costello falls over Hooley, <coughs> oh, bugger, who had been smuggled in with the primary purpose to feeding him meat scraps. The secondary less charitable purpose was to irritate Alma. The windows are closed against the chill of the night. Although she calls for help, it is to no avail. At this very moment, Violet Flaherty is in her room along the hall, well on the way to demolishing the remnant of her bottle of scotch. She is also rending a particularly loud and somewhat tuneless version from the repertoire of the Fab Four. She sings with gusto. Help! I need somebody. Help! I mean anybody. Help me if you can. I'm Needless to say, she is unaware that further down the hall, Dory is of the same emotional opinion. <coughs> Just one hour later, nearing 10pm, an exhausted Dory falls into pain-riddled unconsciousness. Hooley, who is now curled up on her neck, begins to show deep affection for her nightdress. pulling and re-pulling the threads in an ecstasy of love. In the back of the house, Violet is well into her cups. She has finished the scotch and is now creeping through the house to the drawing room where she knows her landlady keeps the medicinal brandy. <coughs> her expedition is successful and she triumphantly clutches the bottle to her bosom. She also has a small pearl inlaid box in which she has discovered some old love letters, surprisingly addressed to Dora Costello from Edward Dugan. In her present state of non-reciprocating love, this illicit relationship between her austere landlady and the next-door neighbour's recently deceased husband fills her with exhilarating voyeurism. She stands in front of the mirror, reading the letters aloud, savouring every passionate literary embrace, as well as the brandy. You are my Venus, my Aphrodite. You are my... Both are undertaken with increasing enthusiasm, but alas, decreasing ability. Along the passage, Dory wakes up briefly weak and confused. Her cries are barely audible. Help! Help! 
and she now finds her mouth full of cat fur. She begins to choke. As if in slow motion, the old lady makes one more feeble attempt to get up, dislodging the ardent hoolie. She makes a wild grab at the bed, with no other effect than to pull the bed covers over her. Aggravated by this disruption, Hooli now moves to the window and scratches to get out. Becoming a little vexed and bored by his enforced captivity, he pees in the corner of the room. Less agitated, he then returns to the crumbled figure on the floor and indicates his newfound contentment and good humour by kneading the bed covers even more affectionately. Some become dislodged and fall across the face of the now thoroughly weakened Dory, who is still lying beside the bed. By 11.15pm, Violet is overcome with passion and is copying some of the more ardent and flamboyant passages from the letters all over her walls. And I want to rip the dress from off your... She uses an indelible black felt marker, adding suitable illustrations in crimson reds and verdant greens. Although her penmanship is excellent, her drawings are not, and she begins to develop a certain crudeness as the hour lengthens. She has changed her song. Yesterday, all my troubles seemed so far away. Now, with the pressures of creativity finally spent, she crouches on the bed and begins to cry into her armpits once again. <laughs> Sleep eventually overcomes her, and as the church clock strikes midnight, Violet rolls over and falls out of bed. She snores, but does not waken. At 12.30am, exhausted and asphyxiated, Dora Costello, also lying entwined beside her bed, finally dies. An hour after dawn at 5.57am, Violet Flaherty wakes up on the floor enveloped in the debris of her depravity. She views the evidence of her late-night theft and artistic endeavours by morning light. Mortified at the condition of her room, she makes an unsteady attempt to repair the damage. All attempts prove useless and indeed merely blur some of the more artistic graffiti. Stumbling out to the lounge, she returns most of the letters back to the cupboard from whence they had been taken. Dejectedly, she realises there is little she can do about those that in her moments of absolute abandonment she had converted into paper planes and confetti. These are swept up and put into the trash can. With head pounding, throat on fire and blurred vision, she sits down and begins to write a letter. Dear Mrs. Costello, last night I found some old love letters between you and Mr. Dugan from next door. You obviously had a passionate love affair with him and one day will no doubt pay for your sins and burn in hell. Even so, I envy you. As you will see, I too have been bad. I'm very sorry. Your lodger, V.F. 
She then makes her way to the kitchen, where with great fortitude, though lack of finesse, she manages to cook dear Mrs. Costello's eggs, bacon, and sausage, which is part of the arrangement between paying guest and landlady. Laying a tray with a paper serviette and lighting a small tea light inset into a bay-marie cradle, Violet puts the piping hot breakfast under a saucepan lid, the note propped beside it. The sun is shining when she stops outside the old lady's room and knocks on the door. Hearing movement within, she calls out as cheery a Good morning, Mrs. Costello, as she can muster. But Dory, still dead, does not hear her. Not wishing to embarrass the old soul, who Violet thinks is probably dressing, the errant boarder opens the door, just sufficient to set down the tray on the floor before firmly closing it shut. Hooli, who has been lovingly fondling the eider down, sees and hears the door open, but is frustrated to find his claws caught in the threads. The door is closed before he finally extricates himself and bounds towards it. Dismayed to find escape still not possible, he is soon placated by the enticing smell coming from the tray. After a great deal of perseverance, he manages to get the lid off the covered dish by knocking the entire contraption over. He is rewarded by a lovely piece of prime bacon. In her room... Violet is applying liberal applications of sundew moisturiser, radiant day blusher and lover comeback lipstick. Then, with trembling hands, she takes out a large manila folder containing maps and coach timetables. After careful deliberation, she traces a suitable route and packs her entire belongings into a small suitcase. She then writes another note. She puts this on her dresser. Dear Mrs. Costello, yesterday I had some rather unhappy news. I am so miserable. I'm not wanted anywhere. I have decided to go to a place where no one can reach me. Your exporter, V.F. The librarian then walks out the back door into Winthrop Lane and catches a number 93 bus, which takes her to the station. Within minutes, she has boarded a coach heading west and dozes and sniffles her way through the two-hour journey. On alighting, she walks two kilometres up a winding road before entering through the portals of the Lady of the Ardent Flame, in exchange for a strict vow of silence, this convent, inspired by St. Joan, provides sanctuary for lost souls. Unable to find a secular lover, Violet has decided to become a bride of Christ. Back at Seven Winthrop Gardens, however, things are also getting very warm. A small but still ardent flame originating from the night burner has made contact with the patchwork rug strewn over the still-dead Dory Costello. By 9am there is quite a raging inferno at Mrs Costello's home in Winthrop Gardens and Mrs Amy Dugan from next door calls the fire brigade. An hour later, Alma Dugan, horrified to learn of the death of her very dear friend and neighbour, Dory Costello. 
She would have grieved more, but is still preoccupied with the disappearance of her cat, Hooli, who has not been home since yesterday. In town, the local library staff are also perplexed at the absenteeism of their colleague, Violet Flaherty. They suddenly realise they have no contact address for her other than a post office box number. Being busy with their own individual redundancies, they do not worry for long. Next door to the library, Detective Orsop sits at his desk in the local police station, rather irritated at a number of new requisitions for investigation. As yet, he has not been notified of a missing library clerk. No doubt that will come later, although he is being pestered by an unpleasant woman for her missing cat. He wonders if she knows anything about the suspicious fire at the house next door. At first it seemed routine. A sight-impaired, frail old lady living alone is an accident waiting to happen. But the neighbours seemed to disagree if she was living alone. Some insist there was a secret border. But if so, who? And where is he or she? The detective adds missing border to his list. And what about the house and its effects? Mrs. Costello was known to be a wealthy woman, but at the early investigation of the house there is little sign of painting, silverware or jewellery in the burnt remains. They all appear to be missing. Could there have been a burglary? Or was it more sinister? And what about the letters? Detective Orsop looked at the charred notes in his hands. Dear Mrs. Costello, last night I found some old love letters between you and Mr. Dugan from next door. You obviously had a passionate love affair with him and will pay for your sins and burn in hell. Is this a blackmail note? And if so, who wrote it? That, together with the suicide letter, in similar handwriting, is very odd. Is this a blackmail, murder, arson, suicide case? Detective Orsop looks at his watch. It is just 2 p.m. He is hungry and needs some lunch. He is a complacent man. There is little doubt all will be explained eventually. It's just a matter of time. You have been listening to Time, written and read by Brianda Cross. If you would like to obtain a copy of the manuscript, please go to fastfictionpodcasts.com. Thank you.